Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello, and welcome to chapter 115 of the Corona Diaries. Ah, good morning, evening. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good heavens. We've, um, we've lost a Prime Minister since we last spoke. Yes, down the back of the sofa. Well, mm. let's hope not. No. Um, his sofa's probably big enough that he might have gone down the back of his own. Um, yes, yes, what a, what, a, what a loss to our great nation. Now what are we going to do? What 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 are we going to do without him? Uh, will, will everything grind to a halt now all these ministers have resigned? Alternatively, what the fuck did they ever do in the first place? And will we notice? Um, what do ministers do? I mean, do they, don't they just write letters um, to other people who actually make things happen? Um, they do seem to write a lot of letters because they're always on Radio 4 saying, today I wrote two. Mm, exactly. Um, so maybe you're writing to the head of the NHS to tell them to do what they would have done anyway uh, or, you, you know, or what they would have done if you hadn't written to them and wasted an hour of their valuable time. Um, I think there's probably a lot of that, isn't there? I mean, the civil servants tend to do all the work and the ministers just do photo ops and kiss babies, shake hands, write letters mm. um, or have, have illicit cheese and wine parties or illicit fiddling about affairs in the back, back office. Not all of them, obviously. No. I am hoping to stay out of jail. Oh, some this. of them do it in the Carlton Club. <laughs> so... Um... <laughs> Uh, what a, yeah, it's dreadful. I, I, don't draw me into it. Cause I'm not going to. I don't think we should. It was nah. only a passing comment, so nah. I'll... I'll, I'll but um... we ha- no, we haven't got a Prime Minister. Um, Boris has gone. Boris has gone. I, I, my money's on David Davis. I like him, but I, he's not running. Uh, he had a go, didn't he, and got beaten by Cameron, which is a shame, because I, I get the feeling he's, he's a bit more like a statesman. He's a bit more thoughtful and measured than... Most of them all seem a little bit. They all seem a little bit insignificant to me. You're listing all the reasons why he clearly is unsuitable to be a prime minister. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Dave. No wonder you never got the gig. No, uh, measured, statesmanlike, all those kind of things. So, That's not going to get you prime minister. That's not going to get you leader of the Tory party. Someone you could have a pint with in a pub and have a serious discussion, but pleasant. You know, you want somebody like that. And there aren't too too many I get that feeling from. I think we got John Major at the wrong time. I think John Major actually was a very good, decent Prime Minister and we just got him at the wrong point in time. Well, the problem is that the best person for that job is somebody, you know, intelligent, down to earth, in touch with what's actually happening in the country. And by in the country, I don't mean Kensington and Chelsea. I mean, you know, Nottingham and and Durham and Newcastle and what's that place? That's the good drugs. Can't remember. Anyway, but um, you know, in the kind of more where the ne'er do wells are, you know, that you need you need a prime minister who's, re- who's really in touch. With the problems of people who haven't got any money or have or or have serious social or mental problems, you know, people that need help, um, instead of swanning around trying to pick fights with the French or the bloody Germans, and you know, make a speech in Brussels and 
Well, that can't do with anything. It's just a load of, you know, pre-dinners. Um, and the thing is, as you're talking, I'm I'm not hearing that as being a description of oh I don't know, Pretty Patel or Dominic Raab or Michael Gove or mm. you know or or every one of the other mm. eleven. Mm. Um, though anyway, let's get off this 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 topic. Anyway, um, my money. Anyway, my, I'm with Liz Truss all the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh sweet Jesus! Right. Um, <laughs> Couple of, couple of comments before we get started. Chris Martin, who's in Liverpool, and I don't think it's the, obviously not the. Well, it might be. The it's Chris not. Martin, I don't it's know. not the. It's not. It's no, not the. No. Um, very quick question. He's got a fantastic uh, photo of you taken in Poland. How the hell does he get it to you? Uh, oh, I'll just send it to uh, to the racket club or to the PO box bloody blah number thing on on all yeah. the rec- records. Uh, I'll be there. You better be quick because I'm in there tomorrow. Right. And I might I might have gone again by Wednesday, but it'll, right. it'll get to me. Well, bear in mind this isn't going out until Friday. That instruction might be a little bit hopeful. Yeah. But, but get it in, get it in, Chris. Get it on the PO box number, just, and it'll, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll you'll look out for it, won't you? Well, alternatively, just put it in the front strip outside my house next to that gnome. Right. I had a gnome turn up in my front strip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who did that. Well, it was a bit, right. out, bit out of order and a bit spooky. But right. I'm sure it was done in good humour. Well, I think of the things that could have been put outside. A gnome's not the spookiest. No, no, no. It is. You know. No, a little note saying, "Be afraid. Be very afraid." The, that's what you don't want, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Or parts of things, like parts of animals or <laughs> parts of small children, things like that. You don't want stuff like that. <laughs> or a, um, a receipt for a gun. Yeah, that yes. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah none of that. None of that. <laughs> a box of cartridges with two missing. None of that. Um, right then. <laughs> the other thing, and I saw this in the... I just had to mention this. Drew Chrisman from Highland in California. Uh, and this was put in the guest book, but it isn't actually uh, a question as such. Um, just attended my first Marillion weekend here in Montreal. Uh, I can't believe you guys were able to perform everything so amazingly. I'm waiting for my rental car to drive down to Niagara Falls. Waiting for it, um, I saw Pete, and for some reason I gave him a candy bar I'd just bought. I'm not quite sure why I did that, but I hope he enjoyed it. Meeting someone you truly respect makes your brain shut down and you act like an imbecile. If I was to see you... That is true, I've done that. If I was to see you around town, I would have likely handed you a rotisserie chicken. (laughs) Anyway, thanks again for the incredible performances. There's nothing in me reading that other than when I got to rotisserie chicken, it just made me smile. (laughs) Drew, that's genius. Yes, thanks, Drew. I would have, I, I, well, I would have accepted it gratefully, um, as long as you give me like a, a napkin or two to keep the grease yeah. off my fingers, because yeah. chicken's a bugger, isn't it? It is. If you're not ready, if you're not ready for chicken, you do have to be ready for it and prepared. Well, a bit like the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> yes, no one expects, expects the rotisserie rot- chicken. chicken. <laughs> There's a t-shirt. <laughs> That's an episode title. <laughs> there you go. We've done it. We've, in fact, we could probably stop now. Nice one, Drew. Yeah, Drew, that is that is top work. And we'll see if we can find out if Pete enjoyed the candy bar. Yeah. Well, I'm I think, seeing. I think, I think I'm seeing him tomorrow. I, I will ask him if he enjoyed Drew Christman's candy bar. Yeah. And that's not a metaphor. That's just that's... a straight question. No. No. Right. Um. On to today's. Uh, on to today's episode. Um, today's chapter, um, and we've got a really long diary section. Um, yes. it's about six and a half pages long, isn't it? It's not nearly as long as the the the, the reality, <laughs> man. Oh lord, what a blinking thirty-seven hour period that was. So we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna move away from our in-depth, well-researched um, sort of polemic on um, mm, polemic. The, the, the Happiness is the Road uh, albums, which we've been doing such a fine job of. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, polemic's the wrong term, isn't it? I um, don't know. I was just impressed by the way you 
threw it out there. Yeah, well, I threw it out to be impressive, and then somebody's <laughs> going to come back and say, yeah, but it's totally out of context, which I think it absolutely is. But, you know, all that great work we'd put into those those deeply researched episodes. We're going to just pause on that for a second. I did that once. I was was at college and I was on this committee and uh, when when I was in Nottingham and I was trying to impress everybody uh, and there was all these lecturers and there may even have been the bursar of the college at the table and at one point I just said, I hope I haven't been misconceived and they all died laughing. Uh, And I'm still getting over the embarrassment of saying that. That was taught me a valuable lesson. Mm. Being impressive in Nottingham doesn't actually involve that amount of work normally. <laughs> well, <laughs> I failed anyway. <laughs> um, but they are Premier League now. Um, so we'll go without further ado. What we're going to do is we're going to chop the diary into two two bits because otherwise it's going to be like it'd be like a half an hour diary section. So we're going to, although there isn't a split in the day. Because it's a single day, we'll uh, we'll we'll do the diary read up to a certain point. Then we'll stop for a quick regroup. Then we'll do the second bit. Then we'll have a few questions to wrap up. So, um, do you want to do you want to say anything before we start, or do you want to just launch straight in? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that this was not long after nine eleven. Uh, America was very uptight and uh, a little bit paranoid. Um, and was suspecting um, Islamic fundamentalist terrorists under every bed. Um, so that would explain what happened on this fateful journey from Heathrow to Mexico City. Tuesday, 21st of September. Heathrow, various parts of America, Mexico City. Alternatively, oh baby baby, it's a wild world. Air rage. Woke up at 7.30 after one of those bad nights of waking up repeatedly and wondering what time it was. Rolled out of bed and downstairs where I showered before making my first crucial coffee of the day. The house was slowly coming to life as Niall first and then Dizzy appeared in the kitchen. Niall went down to shower and I drank coffee, kissed good morning to Sophie and tried to gather my thoughts and possessions together. I leave for Mexico City this morning. There's a car collecting me at 8.30. It arrived early at 8.10 so I maintained my old tradition of not actually packing until the car arrived threw all my things together and said bye-bye to Niall and Sophie, who went off to school happily. Dizzy shed a few tears. She's not looking forward to me going away. I'm sure I'd feel the same if the boot were on the other foot. I'll be away for about three weeks, and I guess I'll be the centre of attention more or less throughout. There's much can happen to place a wedge between us, but we've come this far and we've both fought to keep our marriage together, despite some colossal pressures. If anything was going to split us up, I think it already would have. As with everything else in life, we've both learned from years of previous experience, and believe me, there's much to learn from living this way. H note, spoke too soon. I left at 8.30 on a bright sunny morning, and the taxi made fairly good time, depositing me in Heathrow Terminal 3 around 9.45. I met up with Steve, Pete, Ian and tour manager Quinner. Mark's flying in tomorrow. And we checked into flight UA919 to Washington DC for the first leg of the journey. Check-in was pretty straightforward, much to my surprise, as I was expecting security procedures to be pretty heavy. Security at international departures was thorough, however, and a pair of scissors and a Swiss army knife, which was a present from EMI Switzerland and bears the His Master's Voice logo on it, it's been in the bottom of my toilet bag for years, were confiscated and checked into lost property so that at least I can claim them back upon my return. I made my way to the gate and we boarded the 747, which took off on time without a hitch. Amazing. 
For most of it, the flight was fairly uneventful. I spent much of it chatting to Roderick, our sound engineer, and trying to read his Sound on Sound magazine over his shoulder. The stewardesses must have been around since the 60s and are now, well, in their 60s by the look of them. Personally, I think the shine had long since faded in terms of their enthusiasm for the job, and it's a shame they didn't retire when they ceased to enjoy it. I'm sure I remember a time when cabin crew were young, glamorous, pleasant, and had at least the pretense of a sense of humour, but those days are gone now as far as many global carriers are concerned, and I think UA must actually have put this lot through some kind of passenger aversion therapy. I felt like I was back at school under the gaze of the disapproving teachers. We were due into Washington around 1445, and thankfully around 1445 we were told to fasten our seatbelts for landing. I was looking forward to getting away from the surly uptight stewardesses and stretching my legs. As we landed, a voice came over the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the purser. I have to inform you that we are not landing at Washington Dulles Airport as we have been redirected to Bangor International Airport in Maine. As I listened to this, I looked out of the side window to see a line of four or five large military aircraft. This place looks like a US Air Force air base. The purser continued, quote, The flight crew are too busy to speak to you right now, but I can tell you that this diversion is due to bad weather over Washington and the need to refuel the aircraft. Hmm, well that sounded plainly untrue to me, and I began to fear the worst. Jesus, a hijack, a suspected bomb. I asked the nearest stewardess what was going on. Why do we need to refuel when our time in the air has been as scheduled? She seemed neither concerned nor interested and told me that she'd only been in the job for two years and didn't understand the intricacies of refueling. I asked her politely whether there was any chance of speaking to a stewardess who did understand the intricacies of refueling then. The tension I already felt was heightened when the purser came back on the PA again to tell us we were not allowed to use our cell phones at this time. Fifteen more confused and nervous minutes passed before the captain finally deigned to speak to us. He told us that a few people at the back of the aircraft have been asking questions and he could now tell us that the diversion had been requested by the FBI and security forces and at that moment he was advised that he was, quote, forbidden to fly to Washington in this aircraft with these passengers and this crew at this time. A strange choice of words. We were told we could now use our cell phones to call home if we should require and that we should remain in our seats with seat belts fastened until further notice. An hour passed while the 747 stood on the runway until the captain came back on the PA to tell us that we must now deplane and take all our hand baggage with us. On the way through the door of the 747, I was told by a stewardess that two suits from the FBI had boarded the plane and already escorted two people from the aircraft. Wow, let's hope nothing's about to go bang then. We were led into a bleak hall where several lines had formed to pass through immigration and into the USA. The unfortunate chap in front of me was questioned at length, delaying the queue I was in as all the others seemed to move along smoothly. You know the feeling. Turns out his only crime was to be holding a Pakistani passport, but that was enough to warrant him being taken into a side room from which I never saw him emerge. I had bought a little digital camera on the flight over, so I was trying to snap some kind of visual record of what was going on. I was tapped on the shoulder by the guy behind me who said I risked arrest if I was caught taking photographs in the immigration hall. I told him I thought this was the land of the free. Not anymore, he said ruefully. I was fingerprinted and asked a few routine questions by a female immigration officer who was actually very pleasant, especially so when compared to UA's bitter old trolley dollies. 
After immigration, I went through to a baggage hall where I picked up my hideous and beautiful pink suitcase before crossing the hall to customs where an old female customs officer had a good rummage through my cases. Having done this, I was asked to put my pink suitcase on another conveyor where it disappeared into a hole in the wall. Now we were free to wander down into the main lobby of the airport via a descending escalator. At the bottom of this stood a uniformed airport attendant who asked me smilingly if I had any questions. Yes, I said. Do you know exactly what's going on here? Yes, he said in a hushed tone. The FBI just took Cat Stevens and his daughter off your flight. But I haven't told you. Bloody hell, all this for a singer-songwriter who has claimed to be a pacifist his entire life and wrote a song called Peace Train. A good job Lennon wasn't on the plane, they'd have taken him out and shot him. If some other nutter hadn't already done it, of course. This was quite a story, and would be particularly so back in England, where Cat was a big star in the 60s and 70s, so I called Lucy and Lord B, our publicist, to let them know what had happened. Leave it to us, they said. I hung up the phone, conscious of the fact that I'd just broken a pretty big news story. Strangely, we now had to retrieve our checked-in baggage again from a conveyor on this level, so there was more hanging around until the hideous pink bag showed up. This enabled us all to go and form another queue across the hall and begin checking in all over again. The pink bag was checked in afresh, but not before being examined by yet another security guy who swabbed the handle before placing the swab in a machine, checking for trace elements of explosives, no doubt. Ah, oh, them singer-songwriters can go off bang at any moment. I was beginning to feel like I might explode myself. However, this was only just the beginning. Having checked my pink bag back in, we were pointed back up the stairs to a gate where, see if you can guess, our hand baggage was put through a scanner along with the contents of our pockets, etc., etc., so now we were all back at a departure gate where we waited yet another hour before being allowed back on the plane. If this makes tedious reading, it made bloody tedious doing. Back on the plane, we waited a further hour while the captain explained that the airport at Bangor, Maine was not equipped to load 747s, so all baggage was being reloaded into the hold by hand, which would take a long time, but that the airport staff were doing a great job. He then informed us that, for similar reasons, the plane was unable to restock food or drinks and that the staff would only be able to give us limited supplies of water and nothing else during our onward flight to Washington. He thanked us all, quote, on behalf of America, myself, my crew, my children and my grandchildren for your patience and understanding, unquote. This seemed a bizarre statement, but bizarre was beginning to be lost on me as a concept. I think he was trying to imply that by being patient, like we had a choice, and subjecting ourselves to a seven-hour diversion and much arsing about while our bags were repeatedly examined by various different people and machines, we had somehow saved him and his entire family tree from annihilation at the hands of a mad Muslim intent on bloody mass murder. It was good to know that the man entrusted to fly our 747 was such an easy-going rational guy. So now we were all superheroes too. Well, that's nice. And for the first time in this chapter, we're back. Um, and we've covered the bit that obviously is the first flight, and this is this is the reroute, and this is you know you end up in you end up in Maine, don't you? Bangor, Bangor, um, Maine, in a in a cave off the coast of Maine. Do you remember Shazam? Shazan, no Shazan. It was no. a, it, oh well, never mind. Nobody's old enough. It was in the seventies, and it was a sort of a, um, it was as you know, like Scooby Doo. Only it was about um, a gene, like a genie of the lamp, sort of 
figure mm. called Shazan, and he'd go Shazan and and perform magic and fight crime or whatever. Chuck and Nancy in a cave off the coast of Maine. Chuck and Nancy, they find a ring, and if they rub it, this genie Shazan appears. I could have dreamt it. Carry on. Anyway, no, no, it's fine. I was in Bangor, yeah, against my will. Um, at this point, yeah, and I'd bought, I'd bought, I've still got it, and bought a little camera um, that looks like a Leica, but it's just like three inches big, uh, and um, it's a spy camera, and it it actually works. You can take photographs with it, and I'd bought that on the plane. I mean, God knows why they were selling spy cameras on the, on the plane, but they were. And I bought it and uh, I nearly got arrested because I was photographing what was going on. And then at some point someone came tapped me on the shoulder and said, if, you know, if, if the authorities see you photographing any of this with that camera, you, you'll be in a cell fast and you can say cell. So um, I put it away. Because... Bangers thinking about the routing, so you you've not got as far as you've been rerouted, yes, but actually you kind of do come past Bangor, don't you, on the way? You come you come down the coast on you, I imagine. Uh normally when you do New York and Boston and all those you, you you go over and fly down that bit of coast. Well we were supposed to be flying to Washington DC. Um so yeah, maybe they'd turned us around because we weren't we weren't early. We landed at Bangor ah. exactly the time we should have been landing in, ah, right. in Washington. Okay. Well, so, you would have been early otherwise. You'd have been an hour and a half, two hours early. So. Yeah, everybody thought we were landing in Washington because right. we were we were due to. And as we came down, I'm, I had a window seat. I'm looking down thinking, shit, this isn't Washington. Oh, my no. God, you know, we've been, are we being hijacked? Because, you know, I was feeling fairly paranoid myself after 9-11. Um, everybody was thinking, "What? What's going on?" And, and nobody was getting the truth out of the um, out of the flight deck. No, because that bit of paranoia comes out across in the in the entry. Mm. You know, with you asking somebody and then asking somebody else, and then waiting for the pilot, and then the information's coming out in drips and drabs, and the story's changing all the time. I mean, it really, does quite sound like Boris, actually, to be fair. But um, <laughs> you know, so uh, you know, I mean, and again. At, at what point on the ground did it even start to seem like you got a handle on it? Well, I, I, w I got a handle on it. I came down an escalator and I got to the bottom of this escalator and there was a guy, I think he was a black guy in uniform, uh, quite an old fella, and he said, you know, does it, can I, if anybody needs any help, uh, I'm here to answer questions. So I got straight up to him and said, yeah, what the hell's going on? And he, he said, oh, I said, no, but what's really going on? And he said, well, between you and me, <laughs> they've just arrested Cat Stevens and his daughter uh, and the, the FBI had taken over the plane so that they could land it and, and arrest him. And that was... that. So I was the first person to find out and I got straight on the phone to Lucy back in England and said, you'll never guess what's going on here. And she got on the phone to Reuters and the next thing all the news agencies were calling me for comments and, you know, have you heard anything else? So I broke the story um, and it was this guy at the bottom of the escalator who told me, bloke in a uniform. But by this time we'd already queued for ages in this sort of makeshift... Um, well, it was just a, an aircraft hangar where they'd set up some makeshift desks to examine all the passports and then and then we went through into the airport proper and um, all our suitcases came up. It came out through a, on a conveyor belt from a little hole in the wall and we had all our, our suitcases searched in front of us. Not handbags, our, our checked-in bags. We're all then searched in front of us. Then they all went back through a hole in the wall and then we were all told we could we could go down this escalator into the main airport. And at the bottom of the escalator was this little fella. So that's that's when I found out what was really going on. Going on. Up till then, we'd no clue what it was all about. 
does seem a bit over because they they didn't let him in, did they? They they deported him straight back, didn't they? Is that right? Yeah, I believe they interrogated him all night uh, and his daughter, and then they let his daughter remain in America, and they and they deported him. Um, Lord knows why. I think just know? because he'd embraced Islam, you know. And mm. I, there'd been a TV show that he was on um, back in the way back, you know, 60s or something, 70s, just after he'd converted to Islam um, and changed his name to uh, Yusef Islam, isn't he, now? Mm. Um, and it was one of these kind of... Um, tabloid type TV shows, and the the um, the the chair. What do they call them? The chairman of the the show, the adjudicator, or the the talking head that was that was running the show, really gave him a grilling about um, about Islam and how it says in the Quran that that people who are against the prophet should be should actually be killed. And are you saying you agree with that by by becoming a member of the Islamic faith? You know, which is that sort of typical redneck sort of attitude towards another person's religion. Um, and and he was going, well, no, I don't, I don't agree with, I don't agree with violence on any level, and blah blah blah. And he's going, yeah, but. But it says in the book, are you saying you don't agree with the with the Quran? Then he's going, no, no, no. I, I, the Quran, the, I've you know I've embraced Islam, and the Quran is is my code. Well, what you're saying is then then so they were really you know on his case, and in the end, I think he begrudgingly said, well, yeah, under certain circumstances, you know that could be appropriate. I think he said. Um, that the death penalty could be appropriate. But he was forced into that corner. He clearly mm. wasn't campaigning for it. And I think because he'd said that once on a TV show 35 years ago, he'd gone on the, he'd gone on the Americans' list as a, as, a, as a person of, you know, possible, possible murderous intent. <laughs> so, so that was what that was all about. They should have... Advise people to drink bleach. They would have handed in the keys to the White House. <laughs> well, either that, or it was another Yusuf Yusuf Islam altogether. Yeah, you know, was actually a known terrorist and not a singer songwriter, <laughs> and they'd gotten confused. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, the the Brits weren't bothered because they'd examined his passport and let him on the plane yeah. at Heathrow. But for whatever reason, halfway across the Atlantic, the FBI, the FBI laid an egg and freaked out and took over the flight. Was it because obviously you did quite a lot of British media? I remember seeing you on the media, um, you know, that that morning. Um, did it land in the US as a story in the same way? Well, I, I know Good Morning America wanted to talk to me about it. Um, and then at some point they they backed out and then they didn't want to talk to me about it. Um, so whether that's because the story, there was a better story going on somewhere else or because it had been spiked for political reasons um, or whatever, I don't know. But the, the, I was all lined up to speak to Good Morning America at something like 4 a.m., I never got a wink of sleep because the phone was going all night long. Mm. Um, and and Good Morning America wanted an interview and then at the last minute they didn't. So I don't know how much of a, a stir it created. I think it was reported by CNN as having happened, but I don't know how much they made of the story. Mm. Right, okay. Well, let's, let's go to the second bit then. Um, and that's kind of... The, the story and the reasons for being where you were, we've kind of covered. <laughs> we're now going to go on to the fallout. But obviously in the middle of this, you've got a gig to do. And you've got a gig that when you'd made your transport plans, you had plenty of time for. Yeah, I had to, I had to sing to the whole of Mexico because was, there was live TV uh, of this show, this big 
this big media event that was going on in the National Auditorium, which is a big gig, holds 8,000 people, fantastic gig. Um, and so we, we'd been asked to, to appear on it and I was singing live. Um, and I thought, well, I better fly in uh, a day early to try and get myself the right way round um, to do this because there's a five-hour jet jet lag, obviously. Um, and so I'd gone in a day early, and as it turned out, it took a whole day to get there. Um, so that's what really upped the ante for me. I was very conscious of the fact that I hadn't had any sleep, uh, that I hadn't been to bed. I'd slept on the floor of an airport under fluorescent lights. And, you know, what was really foremost in my mind is I've got to do whatever I've got to do to pass out, you know, and, and, and get myself five hours sleep because, because we'd lost a day. Um, we were actually climbing onto that plane in Chicago, I think it was, or Philadelphia, I got them mixed up to carry on to Mexico City. We were climbing onto that plane when we should have been sound checking in Mexico City. And I was singing that night and I hadn't had any sleep. And so I was really fretting and thinking, God, I'm going to be dreadful. It's just sod's law. You know, it's probably the most, most people I've ever sung live to in my life and I'm ever likely to because there's a lot of people in Mexico. Um, and here I am, you know, being hauled around America for no good reason and just generally being abused. Um, so I was, I was, I, you know, I'd got that mixture of worry, um, nervousness, uh, indignation, anger um, at... at um, at how it had all happened and, and the fact that it wasn't really necessary and then and then to to cap everything. We get on this plane, the, the, the we board the plane, the pilot's seat's faulty and they decide to swap it, which takes an hour and a half while we sit there. And I'm, I'm sitting there looking at me watch thinking, we're supposed to be sound checking now. And then this bloody upstart of a steward who just... He's just so rude to me for no reason at all. I, I, he must have just looked at me and decided he didn't like the cut of my jib from the get-go, you know. Uh, or maybe he was just stressed out with his own problems. But all I did was ask him for a couple of beers, which, you know, on British Airways, if you ask for a couple of beers, they give you four and go, there you go, that'll keep you going. You, you know, they're so cool on BA. And I believe Virgin too, to be fair. But oh my God, United Airlines! Only do it if you have to do it because um, I, they're rubbish. Well, let's go and let's go and hear a little bit more. Let's go and have that story in detail. <laughs> Here it comes. After a private pause to contemplate whether the runway was long enough to take off, I crossed my fingers and, at last, we thundered down the tarmac, clearing the perimeter fence by what looked like a few feet. The journey to Washington was refreshingly straightforward, although a little spartan. After an hour or so, water was passed round sparingly. I tried to look grateful so as to avoid the evil eye of the headmistress. When we arrived, it was 10pm local time. We had missed the last flight of the day to Mexico City and we had been booked on the 8.40am flight in the morning, which was not direct, but via Chicago. Once again, hundreds of miles in the wrong direction. The crowning news of the day, however, was that there was not one single hotel room available anywhere in Washington, D.C., Apparently there's some hot new exhibition of Native American history at the Smithsonian Institute and the city is packed solid with visitors. This means that our only choice was to sleep in the airport 
and after frantic phone calls which failed to secure any hotel rooms at any price, we settled down beneath the white fluorescent lights which, UA staff said, could not be switched off for security reasons. Ah, America's new answer to every rational query. Small aeroplane pillows and thin blankets were found in an attempt to fall just short of treating us like farmyard animals and we lay down one by one on the seats of the airport terminal. I think I managed an hour of fitful sleep before my phone started ringing and the UK's radio and TV news started asking me what was happening. First came BBC Radio 5 Live, then, after a brief show of interest from Good Morning America, which waned, Channel 4 News. I was still talking to Channel 4 News when our 8.40 flight to Chicago began boarding. Quinner, our tour manager, attempted to negotiate an upgrade to business class as a compensation for the delay and the sleepless night but UA would have none of it. They said that any liability was not theirs, as the diversion had been a security issue. What's particularly tricky in all this is that I have to sing live at the National Auditorium, capacity 9000, tonight, Wednesday. It's being broadcast live on Mexican television, and I haven't slept since Monday. No pressure, then. When I got on the plane, I saw that I'd been given a seat in the middle of a row of three occupied seats. I got back off the plane and threw a minor fit into the face of a customer relations supervisor, eventually being offered a row of three empty seats at the rear of the plane so that I could sleep. I spent a valuable hour horizontal before disembarking for the connecting flight to Mexico City, which was leaving almost immediately. We rushed to the gate and made it in time to check in and make our way onto the plane. No empty row of seats for me anymore. The checked-in baggage had been checked right through this time, so we were kind of resigned to maybe not getting our luggage for a day or two. Made our way onto the plane and settled down to be told, after a while, that the pilot's seat was faulty and that another one must be found and assembled in its place. You couldn't make this stuff up, and sadly, I'm not. That was about an hour ago, and there's still no sign of it. As I write, I'm further from Mexico than I was this morning and going nowhere fast. The longest journey of my life was the ludicrous one from Rio to Boston via Heathrow back in 1996, and at 37 hours, I thought it couldn't be beaten. At the moment, I've been travelling for exactly 33 hours and we still have to get down to Mexico City. I get the feeling we're going to break our own record. The new pilot's seat finally arrived and was installed in around two hours. At 11.45am, we set off to Mexico, exhausted, mindful of tonight's live TV performance and resigned to whatever happens next. Sound check at the National Auditorium is noon. I think we'll probably miss it. After we were airborne, food was served. I wasn't really hungry, but my game plan was to have a couple of beers and lapse into a coma so that at least I could chip away at some of the six hours jet lag and general exhaustion and perhaps be in with a chance of being in a fit state to sing tonight in Mexico City. When the steward came round with the drinks, I asked for two beers. I figured this would save him the hassle of having to serve me twice. On British Airways, they'd have probably given me two without asking. They often have. However, on United Airlines, this proved an insurmountable problem. I'm sorry, sir. I cannot give you two beers. Why not? I can't legally provide you with more than one beer. What? How is it illegal? I've been flying all over the world for years and have never heard of that. US law, sir. I cannot provide you with more than one beer, but if you let me know when you have finished this one, I will provide you with another. He said in the slightly terse manner I've come to expect from UA's cabin crew. He then asked Steve Rothery, seated next to me, what he would like to drink. I said he would like a beer. Is that true, sir? The steward said to Rothers. 
Yes, said Steve. I'm sorry, I cannot give you a bear because I have reason to believe that this bear would not be for you, but would be for your friend here. I'm talking now about little less than half-pint cans of Heineken. I sighed and saw little point in debating the issue. It's no doubt a security thing. I sipped at the little can as slowly as possible whilst casting an eye over the in-flight movie, The Alamo, the usual Hollywood American legend dressed up as heroic fact, which strangely I wasn't in the mood to watch. When I'd finished the beer, I pressed the button to ask the steward for another. He arrived and told me tersely that he was still serving passengers further down the plane and that he would get back to me when he was finished. Jesus, what a country this is. I've been travelling for 37 hours and I'm being ticked off for doing as I was told in the first place. I hung on another 10 minutes or so, after which the seatbelt signs were turned off. So I thought I'd just walk down the plane and ask him for a beer. Then he could simply reach into the trolley and give me one. This I did, but he refused, became shirty and told me that he didn't like my attitude. I told him that I wasn't crazy about his attitude either and asked to speak to his superior. He directed me to the front of the plane where I tried and failed to complain about the situation to the purser. He listened whilst visibly bristling and then said, quote, You've had your say, now let me have mine. I was accused of harassment and the so-called superior told me that if I persisted in causing trouble, he would have the plane landed at the nearest airport and have me escorted from the aircraft. Now in an extreme state of derision, I resisted the urge to reach out and strangle him remained calm and asked him how difficult it would have been for his colleague to simply reach down into a trolley and pass me a beer and how this question constituted harassment of the cabin crew. But it was a waste of breath. I was so very tempted to call his bluff and tell him to go ahead and ground the plane. But that would have put an end to tonight's acoustic show in Mexico and would have also further buggered up the lives of all the passengers on this flight, not to mention getting me banned from ever entering the US again. In the end, he said he would bring me a beer when he had finished serving the first-class passengers if I could assure him that there would be no problem. I resented the implication that I was some kind of troublemaker and I told him I failed to understand the question, but that, no, there would be no problem. I was given a second beer some 15 minutes later. Gosh, I'd consumed almost an entire three-quarters of a pint of lager in an hour. Call in the Marines, madman on board. For the rest of the flight, I kept my head down and too stressed to sleep, tried to faithfully reproduce the events of the day here in this diary. The steward in economy, $1,400 return from Heathrow, never did bring me a beer. We finally arrived in Mexico City around 4pm and were met in the arrivals lounge by two friendly and helpful Mexican girls working for the promoter who escorted us speedily through immigration and customs and we were soon in a minibus with our good friend Andrea Escobar who said, hey, there's some beer in the cooler if anyone's thirsty. It felt good to be back in a sane, civilised country. Viva Mexico. P.S. As I checked in at the hotel in Mexico City, I turned round to see Mark Kelly making his way in through the rotary door. He left Heathrow a day after me. And for the second time, we're back. <laughs> Uh, and that is, I mean, that is a truly, is a truly special piece of diary, but only because of 
what comes through it. I mean, you can feel your frustration. I can feel your pain. I can feel how tired you are. I was so it, tired. You know, it, it's written. I mean, you must have written some of it in the moment because it actually, the, the, even the writing has that air of exhaustion about it. <laughs> it was so awful. <laughs> and so, you know, made worse by being so unnecessary and, mm. you know, and made worse by just bits of bad luck. You know, there isn't a hotel room in the whole of Washington for any no. amount of money, which you think, well, that can't be true. But it, but no. it was, you know, because I saw our tour manager phoning around them all and there was um, an exhibition opening at the Smithsonian the following day and half of America was in, in all the hotels in Washington for this uh, Native American uh, exhibition that was a really big deal. Um, and was opening the following morning. So there were that was just purely bad luck for us, um, because otherwise, having you know been horsed around to the extent that we were, having finally arrived in Washington D.C. at damn nearly midnight, I think, um, we'd have found a hotel and we'd have mm. gone and had a good night's sleep and showered up and day two. But as it was, that wasn't an option. So Well, I mean, if that had happened, if you got a hotel, then the chances are also you wouldn't have had a plane with a, with a faulty seat and you probably wouldn't have had to do a, uh, an unnecessary connection in and out of Chicago. I nearly got arrested. Yeah, all of yeah. that. It was just, uh, uh, you know, um, a, a, lot of, a lot of bad coincidences lined up um, with me having to sing to Mexico at the other end of it. Hmm. Well, that's sod. I mean, that is sod's law, isn't it? Because it's at the end of the day that it's not three things, not three bad things happening to three people. It's it's three bad things happening to the same person at the same time. Yeah, over and that's over. That's just again. how life works. Yeah, you know, um, and it, I mean, it would have made a good episode of uh, Mr. Bean or maybe One Foot in the Grave. I could have seen that as a great One Foot in the Grave <laughs> yeah. episode. Yeah, it was a Victor Meldrew kind you know. of period of my life. And I don't want to... I, I don't, don't wanna, believe it! <laughs> I don't want to go back to the bit, you know, in it, because I think we all we all feel what you went through. So I don't want to I don't want to dwell too much on you nearly getting banned from America for life uh, and, 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 and taking a second plane down in, in the space of 48 hours. Um, but... Um, <laughs> When it all came to it, because we don't get in this in the diary, how did the show go? Do you know, I can't really remember. I know we got there about seven in the evening, so we'd missed the sound check. And I think it was all right. I think it was okay. I don't remember it as a major trauma. I mean, cer mm. certainly not in the in the same league as when I, you know, sang sang to the <laughs> sang to the King of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the wrong song and it was playback and my earbuds had flown out as I sat down on the piano stool. I mean, that, I mean, that's trauma. Um, but um, it wasn't trauma on that level. Um, I mean, that was live TV as well, uh, that whole Spanish, my God. Um, so, um, no, I don't remember it being particularly traumatic, but then I never got to see the, the TV footage, so I don't know if it was any good or not. Um, it was such a relief to get to Mexico, and it really did feel like a much more civilised country than the USA. Um, everybody was happy and smiley, and, the, you know, the girls girls gave me a beer as I got into the minibus, and I thought, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, America was. I mean, I remember going a couple of times in the early two thousands. America was a was a a very very uh, suspicious place. Rightly uh, so, you know. Yeah. Rightly so, but um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe they just decided, you know, in for me, in for me. They've all got it in for me. Yeah, and I think it's understandable. What happened in nine eleven was just. I mean, how many times has that happened in a in a in a lifetime? It was mm. incredible. I mean, obviously it's happening all over Ukraine right now, but for it to happen in New York City was just shocking beyond measure. You know, beyond beyond words. Um, so no wonder 
but the, the, um, uh, the I mean the American government and and the the FBI do have a bit of a history for you know getting a bit hysterical and reds under the bed and all of that. Maybe as well if the flight had been going somewhere, maybe if it had not been going to Washington, maybe if you know might have made a slight difference. Maybe yeah, I suppose that's true. We were we were going to Washington D.C., which maybe just up up the ante a up bit. The ante a little. Yeah. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll call it a day uh, for one one five with that truly epic, and it is an epic. I mean, I felt exhausted. I read it this morning. I felt absolutely exhausted when I finished it. Well, good. I'm glad I managed to at least convey some sense of of the the never endingness of it all. It just felt mm. like it never would end that that journey. Mm. I mean, I can't help thinking that if you were ever going to write some form of biography, punching that guy in the face probably would have made a better story. But um, yeah. if if I was a proper rock and rubber, there's two things I haven't done in my life that I would have done, and one of them was punching that guy in the face on that plain or at least picking him up by his collar you know nose to nose and explaining exactly what i thought of him and what i'd been through and why i was so angry uh, and the other thing was not punching andrew lloyd webber when when he was in that bar with us in uh, majorca should have done that not because right. i particularly despise him just because it would have been a great newspaper item and it would have stood me in good stead <laughs> and made me famous. But I, I was too decent to do it, but I wasn't decent enough not to ponder all the positive uh, positive things that would come out of it if I did. <laughs> I think as long as in both situations you'd, you'd use the phrase, listen here, sunshine, just before you'd punch them, I think that would have that would have been perfect. And I think the nation would have forgiven you. That would have been the proper rock and roll thing to do anyway, wouldn't it? but yeah. I'm, I'm not a proper rock and roller, really. And there you have it, on that bombshell. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll draw the curtain. Uh, after, after two days of non-sleep, we'll draw the curtain on 115 and, I'll, and I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, what on earth am I going to sing about? Mm. Mm. I, think, I think that's already nailed on, isn't it? I uh, think there's a good chance. <laughs> You're going to do Sweet Child of Mine, aren't you? <laughs> Toodaloo. Now that I've lost everything to you You say you want to start something new And it's breaking my heart you're leaving I'm grieving But if you want to leave, take good care Hope you have a lot of nice things to wear But then a lot of nice things turn bad out there Baby, baby, it's a wild world Hard to get by just upon a smile, girl Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world I'll always remember you like a child, girl
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>